Hi, George. Hello, Michael. Hey, Lola. Hello. So Lola's in here, and who is Lola? Who are you, Lola? Who are you? I'm George's daughter. Ooh, I like that. That's cool. Oh, you okay. said it so so <laughs> spunkmeister. <laughs> um, so, hey, thank you for showing up, Lola, for this podcast. Uh-huh. Did you know we're sponsored right now? Did yeah. You know this, is, this podcast is actually sponsored. By Killcliffe? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. We're sponsored go. by Killcliffe. George, talk about Killcliffe. So Killcliffe is a energy drink that's uh, basically a healthy alternative energy drink. It doesn't have all those bad chemicals in it. No it's rat poison. No rat poison. Yeah. yeah. You don't want the rat poison. They have yeah. three versions. They have a Ignite, basically your pre-workout. They have a re- um, an Endure, which is during your workout, kind of like a... It's like... Uh, just to keep you going while you're working out, just to kind of replenish sustain your electrolytes, energy. sustain. And then they have a recovery for when you're finished up. It, it just kind of gives you those uh, electrolytes you lost, those B vitamins, and and it gives you just a little bit of caffeine, and it's not that strong. It's about 25 milligrams of caffeine. But the best thing about Killcliffe is um, they uh, are involved with the Navy SEAL Foundation. And Mike, can you take it away for the Navy SEAL Foundation? Well, they just do a lot of good things for active duty uh, and their families, Navy SEALs, and any any company that has a plan to give back and support others, especially uh, those serving our country, is important. Yeah, so use, important. Fil- use Survival, actually, 1-5. Survival 1-5 to save. How many percent do you think, Lola, that is? If I say Survival 1-5. Um, survival 15, I'm sorry. How many percentage do you think that's off? I don't know. You don't know. Fifteen percent. Fifteen percent. Oh, I'm <laughs> <laughs> stupid. You're not. You're not. You're not. You're so smart. I love so, you. Survival fifteen is uh, gets you fifteen percent off. Also, this podcast is sponsored by Black Rifle Coffee Company. BRC is known for being the leader in black coffee, and I'm a big fan of Black Rifle Coffee because not only is it uh, owned and operated by a soft veteran, but they're big advocates as well for. Uh, Special operations and military. Oh yeah, and they and they have they cover all the varieties of, of coffee. They have your you know your whole bean, your ground. Uh, they have the little instant coffees. EMCT. Yep, and then they have <laughs> the uh, the pods. Like if you have a Keurig or a Oxbox. I have an Oxbox. Yeah, I like those. Um, also, if you didn't know this, um, BRC has cool swag uh, and everything that you need yeah. for coffee. I the mean, pour overs. The pour have, overs. I mean, everything fancy coffee stuff you want. Down to just like a, just a regular mug you want to take to work with you. I got a cool co- coupon code. Uh, let's try try this again, Lola. I got Philcraft twenty. How many do you think you save on twenty percent off? Twenty percent. Yeah, just nice. Good. I'm <laughs> proud of you. So Philcraft twenty saves twenty percent. That's a huge discount. But make sure you guys use Philcraft two zero to save. Um, also, want to give a big shout out to Triarch Systems. We just got custom carbines in. We ordered custom carbines, and I shot mine this weekend. I know you're jealous, George. I haven't gotten to shoot mine yet. I, I will though. I, one I, day, I'm excited. Inshallah, one day you will shoot. Um, I shot mine this weekend, and I got the AR pistol. And I'll tell you that uh, one of the best carbines I've ever ran. I'm I'm not surprised. I mean, I run their Glock 17 Charlie, uh, their custom uh, pistol build. I just answered a DM. Uh, the other day, where somebody asked me about their their custom uh, slides, I recommend Triarch. They're yes. not going to put out anything. I've I've ran thousands of rounds through their guns and can stand behind uh, TriarchSystems.com. And it's a solid rifle. Like the rifle is solid. Like, there's, solid. like you 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 move it around. Nothing's jingling and nothing's loose. Yeah, it's it's a, just solid. It's just great great uh, 
Great quality. Yeah, they pay attention to the builds. And and if you use Philcraft, one word, you could say, well, check out. So it, it's Philcraft. How much do you think that's off? Philcraft. There's that's no it. number. What number do you think is... <laughs> what number? What percentage? What percentage do you think... What would your guess be? 25%. That's wrong. That's Damn. way off. You could use Philcraft to, che- to say 5% on checkout. Close, though. It Close. had a 5 in it. It had a 5 in it. Five. Hey, job. I want to say an additional... I'll give an additional shout-out to uh, two companies that are near and dear to our hearts because they're right down the road. Uh, Bide Armory, it's A-B-I-D-E Armory, that's a local business, mm-hmm. is all about supporting other local businesses, including our own. We go through them for everything that we do. Gun transfers, yep. buying guns. I just bought a, a, a Winchester 30-30 lever action uh, rifle, which is awesome. Yep. And my dad just bought a Glock, and I uh, did the transfer through for them. They got it in awesome. two days. It easy. He did, I thought he was going to buy my Glock. Well, he bought your Glock. He was to buy your other one, too. You got to bring it in. Oh, okay, okay. Remind me. Remind yep. me. But Abide Armory, if you tell them, uh, AbideArmory.com, if you tell them that uh, you're friends of Philcraft, they're going to hook you up. That's what they said. That's they what they said, said, yeah. Literally said that. Also, I want to uh, give a big shout-out to my personal um, and Philcraft's personal Jeep and off-road company. They do everything. They do mm-hmm. install of lights. They do uh, install of kits. Lifts. Lifts. They resurrected the Jeep TJ. They did. From they the had that, thing. that thing was like I mean, it shambles. came out, yeah. It was like carry or something. Uh, what was it? Yeah, the car yeah, carry. <laughs> yeah. We had rats in it. There was a rat family. We yeah. had to evict. Ew. It was, it was, yeah. I mean, this happens when you, you help clean around. it a little you bit. You help clean it. Well, yeah. It's okay. We put them in a, a family home. We, we moved them to a new, new home. Yeah. You killed them. The trash can. Um, <laughs> so if you are, guys are interested, make sure you check out uh, Summit uh, Jeep Company. And you know they have a social media handle. It's Summit 4x4 Company. It's S-U-M-M-I-T 4x4 for the X4 Company. And you guys can check them on my social media. I'll follow them as well. But we're doing events soon with these guys. Yeah. And we're planning a Philcraft event, uh, Philcraft Summit event, uh, which will be all off-road vehicles included, doing some barbecue. It's going to be cool, and we'll post that up on Great group media. of guys there. Great they, group they of guys. They have a good team there. They do. Make sure you check them out. They're off of 402 East Sheldon Street, 402 East Sheldon Street um, in Prescott, Summit Jeep Company. Thanks, guys. Hey, this podcast is sponsored. This is the end of the sponsorships and the uh, advertisements. Uh, today on this podcast, we got the opportunity to interview Joel Marks. He's our own Philcraft survival tactical instructor. Um, he's working right now, working his way through the ranks, going, doing assistant instructing mm-hmm. until he can get to the, the point in which he's doing his, uh, primary instructing. We have a very uh, in-depth, comprehensive, comprehensive way of identifying and vetting instructors. Uh, Raul Martinez is one of our guys. Uh, it took him six months just to get to the point where he taught his first class. Uh, but he'll be teaching. Um, I, I'm sure that you'll get uh, a lot of great things out of this podcast uh, from Joe Marks, former Marsoc Mar- Raider. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. Let's kick it off. Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Philcraft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and I'm back in the studio, back from 511 headquarters in uh, Irvine, California. Good to be home. Uh, big shout out to all the guys and gals at 511 who continue to host us. Uh, love building relationships with those guys. Great company. Um, not a fan of Irvine, California. I think me and George spent uh, an additional hour sitting in traffic at 2.30 p.m., which where 20 million people are going at one time um, doesn't make sense to me. But it's good to be home in Prescott, Arizona. So today on the podcast, 
I have Joel Marks. Uh, if you guys have been tracking our social media on Philcraft Survival on, on Instagram, um, we've been plugging him a little bit. His uh, account is at j.j.marks. And uh, Joel is a former Marsoc Raider and uh, obviously a Marine Corps veteran. And he's been moonlighting a little bit, doing AIing or assistant instructing uh, with Philcraft Survival. And I have him here in the studio today talk about his experiences and his background. So first time we've ever had a Marsoc Raider on, uh, but also for you guys to get a little bit more intimate and uh, know who he is. So welcome, Joel. Thanks. Good to be here. So you drove from uh, Prescott, or not Prescott, but uh, Flagstaff. That's yeah. right. Just outside of Flagstaff. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, Let's start from the beginning, man. I, you know, um, I don't know your story uh, completely, and I, I'd like to hear it, and I, I know the audience would be interested as well. Um, you know, how, when did you decide to go into the Marines? Uh, how long ago were you in the Marines? And then kind of walk us through some of your career. Sure. I mean, I think as with a lot of kids uh, in my era, grew up playing that outside Army. We didn't have the social media stuff. Spent a lot of time hunting with my dad. Um just outdoors in general. Um, just after high school, got a little uh, misguided and went to college instead mm. and uh, followed a cousin into the Marine Corps. Spent the first uh, four, five years as an aviation mechanic and door gunner, which was fun. Um, what platform were you on? CH-53s. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was cool until I did that transition to, to Marsoc and had to start jumping out of them. It's a very unnatural feeling to fly oh, yeah. in them and then be told to jump out. So 100%. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't really think that was my calling. Um, you know, I, it, I just always wanted something a little bigger and better. Uh, had some, some friends and neighbors who were recon and they pushed me. And then basically when I did it, the Marine Corps came out with, with a list and said, you guys have to submit a package for MARSOC. And I didn't know what it was at the time. There was Wait, a lot. Wait, that's of, a early days, right? Because that's when yeah, they, they needed the correct. numbers and they needed to fill the ranks. 2008, 2009. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, I really just, I didn't know what it was. There was rumors. A lot of guys were saying, well, you're an aviation guy. Marsoc's going to come out with an aviation wing, et cetera. So going into it, the bottom line is I didn't know what it was until wow. I showed up at selection and they said, do your best, give it all you got. And this is not for an aviation wing. <laughs> wow, wow. So, yeah, I just, I just made the determination at that point, um, made the decision, just go as far as you can. You're not, you know, you didn't grow up in this. This isn't your, the, the ground side is not your native born land, so to speak. Um, just do what you can, go as far as you can. And I never, never hit a closed door. So um, spent the, the remainder of my 11 years with MARSOC. Uh, year of language school. Yeah, I mean, you know how it is, just continuous training, yeah, yeah. workups, buildups, um, deployed to Afghanistan. And then um, as the tempo was so high, I got I got sort of pushed off to help train the the guys who were getting ready to deploy the T-cell. So oh, wow. that was a good time. Yeah, met a lot of, a lot of great guys. So, what, so MARSOC is um, the, the Raiders. That that's an old term, right? From that's a World War II term. Yeah, yeah. So the boat teams uh, from World War II were the the Raiders, the original Raiders, um, and the Raiders now are the only ones who have a shared lineage in the Marine Corps. Basically, 
uh, we started, or rather, we took off from that lineage. Um, our designation started for 0372 was, man, I think uh, 2013 or 2014. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not that old. Debt one, I want to say, was 2008-ish. Yeah, that was the stand-up of Marsoc, correct? Yeah, some uh, Force Recon guys basically went on deployment, came back, and the uh, the designation on the wall had changed. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, huge honor to be a part of that community. Like I said, I mean, I've known several of those guys, and those Debt One guys were my instructors. They're the ones who, one, they paved the way for us, but they also trained us. They They went through that rapid change. Um, where we sort of got to inoculate ourselves and and take those lessons that they gave us and, and run forward with it. Yeah, I remember the uh, – I have a few friends that are debt one guys, and I remember the – I don't know. It was, it was just the challenges that the Marine Corps was going through as a whole uh, during that transitional period because SOCOM was like, hey, why doesn't the Marine Corps have – a special operations element that's part of this, right? Hmm. And, that's right? And at the time, Force Recon wasn't part of that package. And then, you know, they wanted to identify, hey, a special operations command entity. And I remember talking to the Debt One guys, and they just said, man, it was brutal because, you know, you'd have, uh, whether it was sergeant majors or commanders, that were totally against just basic stuff like, hey, growing your hair out longer or doing anything considered special <laughs> because you're... You know, you're a, a, a rifleman first, you know? Yeah, absolutely. The, the idea was all Marines are special. There's no reason to, to make a more specialized branch. But, I mean, it still ruffles a lot of feathers. It's still, <laughs> you still get that, that feeling of separation if you go to any main side base. Um, hopefully that'll go away a little bit. I mean, as, as Raiders of my generation move up and continue on and and take those command billets. Yeah, yeah. It will it will change the atmosphere. That's the hope anyways. Yeah, it seems like it seems like it is changing a little bit. Just the, I think the the important thing that uh you guys did was designate you guys the Marsoc Raiders. I mean, the fact that you guys did that or that it was done, I was even surprised. I was like, "Oh, wow, they even have a the patch has right. lineage in itself." And I was like, "Oh, well, that's legitimate because I remember seeing that patch all over the place." But it was never legitimate. It wasn't, right. you know, issued. And it, you know, I remember going to Ranger School in '99 with uh, Force Recon guys, and uh, I used to think it was just funny how you know they would hide their hide their Ranger tabs under their lapels. Yeah, uh, they just they just couldn't uh, illustrate that because again, they, there was no special right. anybody. Everybody was special. Yeah, uniform regulations can't yeah, can't get away from it. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, and I also remember the uh, challenges because oh, we had our first, was it, 07, 06, 07. Um, we started getting force recon guys that were getting attached to us that were trying to figure things out. Like, hey, how are these guys doing it? You know, and right. kind of figuring out the path or the, the way forward. And they, they were definitely not out of place. They blended in really well with us and uh, they integrated well. And uh, they were they were quite the asset, um, but I know evolving through that through the ups and downs, it's still a challenge. And I, I remember, damn, I remember being in uh, Iraq with Task Force in 06, 07. and I was at E seven at the time, and I had like an E five, um, uh, Marine Corps E five that yeah. came out of a chow hall once, and he saw me 
And I think I was, I didn't have a, a, a hat on. I didn't have to have a hat on. <laughs> and he came charging over because he thought maybe I was a younger guy. I was mm-hmm. a younger guy, um, but he didn't know who I was and started ripping me a new one. And I, I, I just, I was, I remember thinking to myself, man, like, man, what is going on, man? Like, wh- why is the priority for the core in this capacity? And I don't know what his background was, but. Um, why does it seem so regimented? And I know that's the most difficult aspect of any special operations unit is getting away from uh, the, the regimented institution, you know, and thinking outside the box a little bit. Yeah, I think the, the, biggest, the biggest thing that I learned in that transi- transition from the regimented guys yelling at you because your hands are in your pockets or your boots are bloused too high um, was the intent. I mean, it goes back to commander's intent. It always does. Mm-hmm. And, and taking that idea and handing it to an E4, an E5, it just, it's, it's mind-blowing for some of them to understand the authority that special operations, E, whatever it is that they command, that they, that they hold. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, I, I think one of the, the biggest things or one of the biggest memories for me was trying to walk one of my um, indige commanders off base. I had flown him into base mm-hmm. and, you know, walking around in uniform. I, I was an E5 at the time and um, trying to get him to leave um, base and talking to the lieutenant who was in charge of the, the gate guards, it it blew his mind that I had the, that it was just me. It was just me handling this one guy and that I had the authority to to make the decision to let this Afghan leave a U.S. base into his back into his country, it was. Oh, it's crazy! It, it took him. It took me a half hour of convincing and conversing, and you know, um, sort of back and forth with him to get him to understand that it, it, it is what it is. You you have power over these twenty guys here. He has power over the two hundred guys underneath him, and I need him to get back and. There's very little that you or I are going to do to stop him from going back to his country. Let's just, let's um, help him. Let's empower him to get back. Yeah, it's it's hard to think outside the box for, for regimented <laughs> uh, uh, units and organization. I, I remember the first time, well, it's not the first time, but I, I went to a, the Navy base in Coronado, mm. and I was in E7 at the time, and I think I was in, I was either Freefall Jumpmaster or some school here in Arizona, and I was there, I was just on a break, a weekend break. So I was gonna go to the housing on the naval base. And so when I showed up, I showed my ID card, and dude, I was like, I was 26 or something like that. So a young dude, so the guy takes my uh, card and he's pr- he's pretty informal about it. And then he looks at it and then he's like, oh, chief. And he calls me chief, he's like, hey, if you, know, you know, sorry, I didn't realize you were chief and he handed it back. And I was like, <laughs> what the hell is a chief? I'm like, what's that even mean? And then we, I went on, on the base and I went in the chow hall. And, you know, in special operations, you eat with everybody. Like, I eat with a, eat, I've eaten with General Ham before, like the Correct. AFRICOM commander. <laughs> and so I, I uh, went into the chow hall and I went to where I guess the lower enlisted swine eat because I went <laughs> yes. where the E4s and below supposed to, lower enlisted are supposed to eat. And uh, they found out that I was over there. Some One of the guys, like, told somebody. Shame on you. Yeah, they, they came over to me and said, uh, Hey chief, um, this is for lower enlisted. Uh, you're supposed to eat over here with the uh, officers and the senior enlisted. I was like, what? And so I started asking people, and did, I, I did not realize how big of a deal it was to make 
considered chief at E7 in right. the Navy. Because in special operations, you know, it, it, you, you're, the, the big role that you have to play is you ha you're like the diplomat in the field, right? You represent Correct. the nation in policy, but also tactics. And so you have to be diversified in that structure of rank or organization. And sometimes, like, I would pretend to be an officer in some capacities. Absolutely. If I'm sitting down, they're like, who are you? I'm like, I'm Commander Mike. And Correct. It's like, I'm an e E7 or E8, but I'm Commander Mike in that sense so they could understand the rank structure. Yep. And so, you you know, I could see the, the learning curve of which is still you guys are going through. Oh. Talk to me about the, um, the MARSOC selection process of what you can talk about. I know... So you said you were in aviation and then you came. So they recruited from all walks of life in the, in the military. Yes. And, and then you could go and basically re-identify uh, as far as your your identification code, not, not as in, in gender, mm -hmm. but re-identify <laughs> as an operator in Mars. I correct? do identify as an operator now. Nice. Um, yeah. It, I mean, again, when I did it, it was super ambiguous. Um, originally, what we were told was it was going to be a um, – a billet that we would hold for a short, uh, short time. And then we would, we would reattach to our original unit. It wasn't considered a permanent MOS change. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was weird. I mean, mm -hmm. losing time in, in grade time in billet, um, was, was considered adverse for career development. Yeah. So first of all, I was considered insane just for accepting that there's a lot of guys who just said, oh, you know, can somebody write me a letter and say, I'm not fit for this? Or some guys were honest and said, I'm just not interested. A little more respectable, but yeah. okay. Um, but I just, like I said, I just went head on. Um, when I showed up there, I, I, I think I was at a pretty extreme disadvantage. Um, I didn't understand anything, what I, what I now call ground side the the O3 side, the infantry side, um, from command structure to anything. Um, but you didn't have bad habits either, right? Correct. Yeah. I didn't, well, not even bad habits. I didn't have habits. Yeah. I didn't have to worry about, like you were just talking about, um, being in the same room as a lieutenant colonel. I happened to be a rack mate with a lieutenant colonel during, or rather a major during my selection process found out later. Oh, wow. Great guy. You know, you can learn a lot of lessons when you take down those barriers of command structure mm -hmm. of what's supposed to happen. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I went into selection. It was for me an extreme learning curve. Um, but every day was a new day. Every hour was a new hour. Um, it was a great great experience that when I left there, I did go back to my original command until my school date uh, for ITC. Um, and I looked at aviation, I looked at the air wing in a different light. Just those few weeks oh, wow. were were really eye-opening, changed a lot of things. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of guys who want to go into selection, um, and, and it has changed significantly since then. Um, since I went through selection in ITC and um, deployment, I helped instruct uh, or cadre, I guess, uh, two um, assessment, selection, prep, and orientation course, which is the prep course for selection and the selection. And being on the other side of it was 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 pretty interesting as well. It was a great experience. I don't think I'd trade it for anything, but 
Yeah, I remember uh, around that time period, they started recruiting from our pools of guys because mm-hmm. we were running you guys' as, uh, lanes mm-hmm. for selection. And uh, yeah. uh, we were running some of the ITC stuff, like firearm instruction and stuff like that. Yeah, I thought uh, it was all great experiences. Um, I, I think I uh, was offered to sit in the lane at one period of time. Uh, it was a contract. It was you know mm-hmm. we were hired as active duty guys, but it right. wasn't TDY. Right. You just got paid as a civilian basically to do it. Yeah. Uh, but I th- I thought it was done the right way because uh, when I think about like you know some of the most elite guys that I know and the best firearm ins- instructors I know, those guys were recruited to teach you guys from the get go. And I was right. like, wow. I mean, even in SF to have that uh, that level of experience coming into to stand up an organization is, is unique. And I thought it was really cool. Yeah. I'll say the, the schooling process, the ITC process was, was amazing. It took, um, I think a year, you know, with breaks for holidays, et cetera. But the level of cadre that we had for that, the mentorship that we received during that, I mean, that set the basis for everything for the next five years. Wow. And we did, we had a lot of army cadre, a lot of, uh, former army Uh, contractors. And from what I saw, my experience was, it was based very heavily off of their experiences in Army SF. Yeah, yeah. Um, And even moving on after that, guys would go to like the Bravo course, the Charlie course. Mm -hmm. And those guys coming back are just like, guys, we're doing things wrong. (laughs) Here's how how the Army, who guess what, have been doing this since the 60s, are doing it. Maybe we should go down this path. And even then, they've been a lot of resistance with the uh, the senior enlisted um, command structure. Uh, they they just didn't like that. It's the Marine Corps way. You yeah, know? yeah. And again, hopefully, we'll get that changing. Yeah, I think it was um, what was it? Uh, I remember uh, uh, you guys were kind of taking on the structure kind of of our Q course, where yeah. even language school. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. When everybody heard that, I was like, well, I mean, if you're doing foreign internal defense, which MARSOC does, correct, um, you need to have those skill sets. Yeah. And so you guys, as I imagine over the last decade, it's gone through a hundred changes. Absolutely. And it's, it's just evolved over time. Now, when you went through, you did do a year of language. That's correct. Yeah, I did a year of Pashto. Um, wow. And... It, it changed, I think, before from before me and directly after. Mm-hmm. Guys were going to uh, um, DLI in Monterey, and um, we didn't. They hired Afghan instructors for us, and that, I mean, that wow. was interesting. Yeah, wow. having not yet been to Afghanistan at that point, mm-hmm. dealing with a you know a sixty year old Afghan set in his ways, yeah. um, who spoke broken English. I mean, it it was a year of Immersion is what it was. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But it was great. I mean. Did that, did, for as an opportunity, um, uh, taking that instruction, did it pay off as far as when you were downrange and able to communicate? Yeah. Uh, so initially, I didn't I didn't divulge that I could speak Pashto, that I could understand what neither, or rather, either the interpreters or the populace could say. Mm-hmm. I just sort of stood back, listened, Smart. and collected. Yeah. Um, and I sort of played a trick on, a, he's now a really good friend of mine, my interpreter at the time. Um, and I just said, hey, you know, Jack, teach me Pashto. 
you know, teach me the language. Let's see. I've only got seven months here. Let's see what we can do. Yeah, yeah. And man, was he surprised when after <laughs> two weeks, I'm doing full conversations with him. He loved that. He thought he was great. The best instructor ever. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure he's still looking for a, a job. But um, no, it was it was great. It was it was good to get to sit back and sort of vet the conversations yeah. for our, between our interpreters and our indige and our. The local populace, any exchanges, food exchanges, uh, whatever we were buying when we were in town, whatever. Yeah. Um, man, I don't know that I would trade that skill at that time for anything. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not very used now. Yeah, it's it, what's uh, you know, it's just interesting you bring that up as a tactic because you know counterintelligence and listening to conversations, especially in those small circles, can be. Uh, not only advantageous but life saving. I mean, force protection is a huge uh, measure, and to be able to have that skill set is, um, you know, I, I learned French, and then wound up being in <laughs> Afghanistan and Iraq for you know ro- multiple sure. rotations. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a, a force multiplier as well when, when talking about building a rapport, which you guys obviously are doing. Yeah. Um, so when you think about the the tactical space and the, ta- you know, the tactical industry, it, you know, you don't see a lot of MARSOC guys. I, I think there's a, I know this dude named Cody, who was like an E8 in uh, MARSOC. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I know a couple other guys, but they're not really instructing. Like none of yeah. them are doing like tactical training. Right. And it's just something you don't see. Even force recon, it's rare. Like you, you got Mike Pannone kind of guys <laughs> yeah. that spent a sliver of their time in the core, but uh, you know, they did other things, but you, why do you think that is? Is there something, you know, is it the quiet professional thing or what, what do you I think I do think is? that's what it is. I think from a very, from the very beginning, I mean, that non-disclosure agreement. Yeah, that's, a, yeah, that's huge. <laughs> it's, right? it's, it's sort of driven home for us. I, I'm sure it is for everyone, but yeah, for some reason we take it pretty seriously. Even when I'm asked, you know, and people sliding into the DMs for a set, you know, ANS questions and stuff like that, it's, it's vague and, um, I, I try to be helpful, but I think keeping some of that mystique, yeah, uh, yeah, one helps draw people in, which I'm sure you know is extremely tough for the services right now. Mm-hmm. Everybody's having a hard time recruiting, so I think if we can uh, do something to help that by keeping a little bit of the mystique, that's awesome. But um, for me, I think we can do just as much good to sort of draw some attention to the things that we've done, the things that we're able to do. Um, I know when when I initially uh, was medically retired, returned home, I, re- I returned home to San Bernardino, California, and I returned home um, maybe a month before the San Bernardino shooting. Mm. And so for me, that, you know, I was at the gym three blocks away on my way home, get home and my dad's like, hey, you know, did you see what's going on sort of a thing? My first reaction was, oh man, I got to get out there and help. Yeah, yeah. And then my thought, you know, the, the train of thought went, that's not your job right now. You left that. Yeah. Um, there are professionals out there doing their job. And further down the line, I said, how can I help that? How yeah. can I help the people who are being affected by this? Not that the war is coming home, but there are threats here that the skills that you and I alike have been trained to deal with we can, we can pass that stuff on. And that's, I mean, if I can do that, that's great. That's what I want to do. Yeah. So it's, a, it's almost like a more deliberate action, right? Cause I, I, I'm always reactive as well. I remember after nine 11, you know, throwing my uniform on thinking like, what do I do now? Call my, my, uh, 
chain of command and like let's do this now right and now it's a you know obviously it, it's tough one to let go of that responsibility because uh you, you were em- emboldened by the the duty and the responsibility selflessly but when you hang that uniform up you obviously have in my opinion other responsibilities to Absolutely. to foster and you know when when you look at preparedness and you look at tactics I mean, you had a conversation about the industry and our kind <laughs> yeah. of disdain for a little, a lot of the issues. Um, and one of the things that we talked about was how, and I personally have a problem with this, how a lot of, uh, I don't even know, it, it doesn't even have to be civilians, just people in general who haven't experienced, you know, engaging on the battlefield or in warfare or the loss of life kind of the vicious cycle of that, um, they're so nonchalant and very artistic with this uh, ability to run around, shoot targets, and then articulate their thoughts on something that they really don't know anything about. And yeah. What's your opinion on that? I mean, again, like you said, we, uh, we've talked about this. The social media platform has sort of given a voice to those people who don't necessarily need a voice or who use their voice indiscriminately just throwing information out there, um, short, sort of letting that round go down range and, and not worrying about the consequences of their actions. Um, if there's no responsibility, if there's no um, check for that information, it, it, it can get people hurt. I mean, if people see a flashy Instagram video with whatever, you name it, whatever the new hot thing is, and they go try it and either hurt themselves or worst case, try to use that in a life-threatening situation to save their life or their, you know, their family member's life or somebody, a bystander's life, whatever it is, how do you hold that person responsible Mm -hmm. when, you know, I'm sure you've seen the meme, you know, this guy's from Instagram. He's here to teach us to shoot. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's sad where it's gone. When, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I stepped into social media. I didn't really have a presence at all. Um, and I think that's when the, well, you said it, the industry was developing. That's when it was starting to get more popular. That's when companies were like, oh man, we can use this platform to market whatever we want. Gun bunnies and, you know, automatic weapons, whatever. And everybody ate it up, but there was no check. There was no validation, no verification. And when I tried, the, the little voice that I did have, um, it, it just fell on what I think fell on deaf ears. And that's something that I want to change as well. I mean, we, since then we've had some great instructors step up and, and come out and say, Hey, what are we doing here? Where is this, where are we going with this? Um, and I hope to try to help be that. When you think about, um, you know, the actual, what you consider, uh, accreditation or validation from an instructor, what, what are some of the things that you could see? that would make you think, okay, this guy, he's good to go, civilian or no or whatever. Is there, is there some things that you look for? I think confidence because confidence comes from experience. Mm. Confidence comes from, um, I mean, it, it is being sure of yourself and being sure of yourself is doing something over and over until you, you don't fear failing at that. And when you see that in someone, um, I, I think, coupling that with real life experience, you know, 
bullets travel two ways. Um, I think that is a really good measure. But I do think that there are certain skills that can be taught from people who haven't necessarily been shot at. And that's okay. That's great. Technical skill sets. Absolutely. I mean, we don't go to one skill as special operate, or we don't go to one school as special operations and, and think that everything's done. We continually develop. We continually take bits and pieces from everywhere that we go and develop this, this toolbox. And if there are people who are putting out good information, um, you can use those as tools for your toolbox. The problem is when those people start to get notoriety, famous, insta-famous, it, uh, it goes to their head. And then that information gets unfiltered and they get too big to check. Um, but I do think that that is a good combination, confidence and experience. Yeah, it's definitely two, two noteworthy um, elements. I, I, I just have a, I have a really uh, serious issue, like you said, with these, the teaching of the tactics and nothing going checked and then people buying into it because you know the, the whole point of influencers is to influence yes or to be influential in a, in a market space and then when you get these kids that's what they are right? right you have kids who are looking up to these guys who don't have the experience or are teaching it's really gunplay i call it gunplay yes, right absolutely. it's not it's it's not tactics it's gunplay right. um and they can't articulate why like why are you running around laterally and in depth and then shooting, you know, one round per target and then you, you got your pro timer and then you're repeatedly doing that and then you're talking about how it relates to tactics. Like why? And a lot of them obviously don't have it and they or they make it up. Right. And what I've seen guys do is they they hang around soft guys, right? Because that that's their validation. Right. If I hang around a soft guy or if I get a picture with a soft guy then uh, I'm, I'm in the circle. Right. But I, I, you know, just knowing the community and knowing the guys, it's like, man, I, I just, I, I don't buy that, man. I just don't buy that. Uh, those guys are good with it. You know, right. Skills and tactics are two different things. Mm-hmm. The skills that you can learn from someone aren't necessarily related to their experience. I may be able to tell you and articulate better how to manipulate a firearm, but if I can't actually do it. That's that's not necessarily a problem. I can help you improve. Mm-hmm. But tactics, I think, come from a whole different realm of understanding. Yeah. Uh, just that that's the experience aspect. That's having dealt with it. Having a plan looks great on paper and then the paper goes away in real life hits you in the face. Yeah, yeah. 100%. And then and then also in a, uh, addition to that, um the mark, the industry itself, <laughs> right? We're, we're talking about companies and you know influencing these influencers, pumping money into them. That's what it is, money. Uh, I, I have a uh, some guys that I worked with in uh, Wyoming recently when I taught out there, and they had a a pretty, you know, it was a standard experience with uh, social media influencers at Shot Show. Sure, um, where these guys were just acting like clowns and they were not professional. Uh, as per their their Instagrams, um, but when I see that kind of uh, behavior, I, and then I realize that these companies are pumping thousands, thousands right into these into these guys that's to highlight. Yeah, yeah that, that's conservative, exactly. <laughs> um, I think about my time at Shot Show, where you know I was an active duty E seventy eight going to Shot Show and then representing Special Operations Command, and 
I remember the industry taking advantage of me where, hey, Mike, like lay out the tactics, lay out the equipment, lay out what, what you would want to see. Sure. And not realizing that, you know, hey, I want to better the industry, but not realizing it's a for-profit industry. I'm not, I'm not bettering um, individuals to be better protected or better prepared. I'm benefiting a multi-million dollar corporation who's taken advantage. And now these guys are like, well, why use special operators and experience? Why don't we just use um, th- this influential market of civilians and whoever I'm else sure he's decides? he's got a great following. Why not? Yeah, they, gotta, yeah, they have 10,000 followers, so let's, let's focus our attention there. And, you know, obviously it's uh, reciprocal and it's cyclic and it just continues to grow. Um, but what do you think is the breaking point? I mean, what do you think is the end of all this uh, gunplay? I don't know. That's the that's the scary part. I like to think that reality will will step in, that common sense will begin to step in. And I have seen that a little bit, but it's a small niche, you know. Money is driving all of it. If if these influencers are going to continue to get paid, they're going to get the most Gucci gear out there, and that's what makes a good picture and that's what everybody wants and then that's what sells. Yeah. What sells is a far cry from the basics. It's yeah. it's not, um, you know, a pistol that works. It's a pistol that looks really, really good in a picture, and the lighting's right, and the background's light, mm-hmm. right. And um, the people that are pumping this money and don't care, they don't necessarily understand the stakes behind the decisions that are made mm-hmm. in the in the situations where these tools are used. I mean, if you're breaking out a pistol. Things have gone pretty far downhill. There's probably a lot of decisions that could have been made mm-hmm. better leading up to that. But in that moment, when it's already too late for all of that, if you're worried about, um, if you have already made the decisions to make your gun, your firearm, your your device, your tool to protect yourself so flashy that it doesn't work, it's yeah. too late. Yeah, It's too late. You have fallen prey to the Instagram image and you may end up paying for that. And that's, that's extremely unfortunate. Yeah, I, I think so. And you're right. It's absolutely about money and about popularity because that's what drives conversions and sales. Sure. Um, a part of me feels like, you know, I, I'm a nice tactician in the industry because I, I just don't waste a lot of energy yeah. um, focusing on the plethora, right? The, the large... It would take too much energy. Just too much energy. And so I, I haven't focused on it, but... There, I know a lot of guys who are buddies or peers of mine who are going to get out, and to be honest, they're not nice, and they will crush these kids, and um, and and there'll be and you know they'll they'll get attacked for crushing these kids' dreams, but there'll be enough people to rally behind these guys to be like, hey, listen, man, that what what they're saying, they're articulating, there's good points, great points, uh, and I hope if you're listening to this podcast, you, you take heed from that and and. Look, it's not. A, I'm not worried about the likes and the comments. Like Joel said, I'm worried about the liability. I'm worried about the kid who thinks shooting somebody retracted because he saw it demonstrated on a paper target on yep. an IG post is the tactic to use in self-defense um, when the reality is these, these kids are going to end up in prison or end up making bad decisions Absolutely. In, in their lives. Um, so anyways... Uh, <laughs> When it comes to tactical philosophy and kind of the things that you focus on as a, a as a tactical instructor, do you have like a you know a, a way that you operate or a philosophy behind the way you think about tactics? 
I try to use common sense. I like to look at something and ask why. Why are we doing this? And I think that's what makes a lot of really good instructors great. Um, if you can't tell me why you're flipping a magazine 30 feet to the right or left, if you can't tell me why you're checking in the chamber between a mag change, then maybe you're doing something that's not necessary. Maybe you're wasting precious, valuable seconds because you're not intimately familiar with your firearm. One of the things that um, I like to ask, I, I, I look for, is um, a round count. You know, if you've put a lot of rounds through your rifle, you start to feel it. It becomes an extension of your body. It's not you, but it's an extension of you. You can feel the buffer tube not push the bolt forward. You can feel it push forward, but not all the way. It's a malfunction. You, it, it, It's intimacy. It's familiarization. And when you're spending money on 27 guns instead of 27 classes, there's a priority issue. And you can see that on the range. When somebody shows up, everything's Gucci. Um, odds are they're spending their money in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. The good thing is when you see that on a range and they're coming to a class, maybe the tables are turning. Maybe their perspective has changed. Maybe something that, you know, like we're doing here talking about it has, has opened somebody's eyes and we can sort of turn that train around, bring it back to common sense. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, I'm, I've always been big on the reps. And, and like you said, there's a, you know, we talk about this Malcolm Gladwell statistic of that, this 10,000 <laughs> hours, this 10 years mm -hmm. mastering anything. It's like rarely are people born with gifts. It's the work they put into it that's going to result in you know Absolutely. the execution of those um, specific skill sets. And I, I, I feel it, you know, when I have a slide lock, when I have a I could see it, even instructing, you know, so long. I, when I see somebody insert a magazine, I don't even have to see them seat it um, improperly. I could see the extra space. Um, I could tell it's not properly seated. I Wasted could, movement. I, I could see all these little things. It's mm -hmm. because we're familiar with, we're intimate, like you said, with the uh, the practice. Absolutely. And and not a lot, not a, enough people are in the practice. Um, what are what are some of the things that you learned in your Marsoc career? Um, tactically speaking, that that you've kind of uh, added to your toolkit when it when it comes to instruction. Did did you get, did you spend a lot of time downrange doing a lot of FID and foreign internal defense? Yeah. So when I got there, I, I was that little lieutenant I I talked about that little commander rather was in charge of 220 guys. And when I came over there, they said, "Hey, you're taking over for Danish Special Forces. You are the one. We've got other things to do." Joel, you're the one. Okay. Well, seeing the way that they had been sort of, not that the Danes did a bad job, but it was in just disarray. Um, and taking <laughs> that language barrier, because not all of them, as you know, not everybody speaks Pashto. The language barrier, the skill uh, barrier, the equipment uh, deficiencies, and making it happen. If what I have always thought or rather what this is, has made me come to realize is that if you can help somebody understand the intentions of their movement, the intentions of what they should be doing, the way things are supposed to work, they can, they can sort of take that and run with it. If I can tell you why you need to reload or why you need to lock the bolt to the rear, you're going to be able to branch that out into 
20 different scenarios that I don't even think of. But you understanding the why, the commander's intent, um, it, it helps everybody to be able to make, to be better decision makers. And if you can, I hate to steal it or to use it, but Frank Proctor says it, thinkers before shooters. You know, if you can think, the faster you can process something because you understand the mechanics behind it, the better you will be at it in the future. And it's, it's absolutely right. Yeah, I love it. Uh, I'm a big fan of, well, Frank's a good, uh, a oh, good dude. Awesome. Um, but I'm big on cognition, man. I think mm. a lot of the, it's not, a lot of the people don't understand that tactics or, or at least skill sets aren't necessarily um, just the execution of mechanics. It, it has a lot to do with cognition. I mean, because, you know, if you don't focus on the cognitive processes that get you to that mechanical solution, you could be opting for the wrong solution right. and, and setting yourself up for the wrong consequence. That's absolutely and right. And so, we, we all, you know, we're big on teaching uh, decision-making um, and choosing the right path. And, and there's a whole process that's involved. And sometimes, you know, I always make the uh, example, like, I'd love to run an advanced carbine course and then everybody comes in and grounds their carbine and then I bring them into a classroom and then I have a, a written uh, cognitive <laughs> evaluation or test, you know, yeah. and have them work through like a GT, a technical uh, cognitive test to have them think through process because that might benefit them more than just technical skill sets because it's more than just, it's a thinking man's game. It's not just uh, the execution of mechanics. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I saw that AIing with Raul at the, uh, gunfighter pistol and gunfighter carbine courses, you can see it. Yeah. Making these people think about what they're doing, why they're doing it, yeah. how to do it better is it's going to change the way they react. Mm -hmm. It changes everything. It doesn't just influence the way you handle a pistol. It doesn't just influence a carbine. It rolls into everything that you do and breaking down the why and letting people make that decision, helping them make the right decision in those situations is is huge. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of, you know, obviously impartial, impartial. <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of just teaching people to be thinkers and not just uh, tacticians. And I think we're good at that. I think that's uh, one of the mainstays. Um, when it comes to uh, all of your experiences in Marsoc, what's your favorite memory? Do you have anything that stands out to you? Hmm. Let's see. The text message that I received um, from that commander after I had left saying essentially that he, he missed me, you know, um, that, that was a big deal to me. That was a, a relationship that I took from nothing to a brotherhood yeah, you know, to yeah. family. I mean, um, this is the Afghan. Community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, he, he had an email that he could still communicate to me with. And it wasn't, hey, I need something. Hey, the new guys are bad. Hey, um, things are going wrong. It was what you did. He could, I guess maybe he could see how I felt in wanting to help him make his country better. And that was, I mean, that was a big deal to me. Um, being able to develop those relationships and, and pass on that. That's what I want. I want to make people better. I want to help them make things better, be better prepared, be more aware, be better uh, gunfighters, be better um, at first aid. Anything I can help, anything I can do to help these people become better, it's, it's in my heart to do that. 
Why do, why do you think that is? Why, is it because you understand the consequence of not doing so? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it has to do with my upbringing. Um, but uh, having seen the consequences of poor decisions, yeah, I, I think that's what it is. I don't want to see – the last thing you want to do is see your fellow countrymen go through that sort of suffering when there's something that you could do to help prevent it or to help them be better prepared. If I can do that, it's an amazing thing. Um, and it can just put all of us in a better situation. Yeah, I, that, I just – just you saying that just reinvigorates my passion for these – even just trying to educate these kids or, or even I've had police officers who've been t- who teach certain tactics and I've tried to illustrate these points where it's like, man, you have no idea, man. If you, right. you're, you know, you're the things that you're teaching or the things that you're putting out there into the world, you don't realize the consequences and the second, third order effects of those, <laughs> uh, the, those, what you think is teaching or mentoring and, and what it can do to people or what it can do to change lives in a negative way. And, and so, yeah, that's my that's my part of my disdain for that industry and space because I I understand your passion for that um, is is in the best uh, possible outcomes for people because you know what that looks like if you don't right. prepare or if uh, you are putting out bad information or you're not planning contingencies whatever it may be. Yeah, I mean it's there's no second chance. There's no redo. You get one shot at this, and if you don't prepare yourself ahead of time, then you're setting yourself at a disadvantage for those with nefarious intent mm-hmm. or or just being a passerby in a, in a bad situation. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't get to choose the situations that we end up in sometimes, mm-hmm. but we can choose how we prepare for those situations ahead of time. Yeah, I... I uh... I was, you know, I'm big into obviously survival and preparedness and stuff. And something I was reading uh, recently was uh, these studies that people have been doing on. It's called pre-mortem, not post-mortem, but pre-mortem, which is a, I think it's a scholarly way of basically analyzing information and just doing what we typically do, which is, um, you know, area studies, (laughs) analysis, uh, AFO, OPE, all these preparation things that we do in uh, preparation for an operation, how we've been taught in construction uh, of an operation in our minds mm-hmm. and developing these plans, um, but that's easily applied for us. But if I think about somebody like when I was a private in the infantry, even in ranger school, not really understanding the whole picture and why we were doing what we were doing, sure. um, and I and I am, can't imagine being somebody. Uh, you know, from the outside looking in, going, why? Why would these guys be even talking about this? It doesn't make sense. Like, why would I burden my life with all this extra work when it comes to being prepared? Like, who cares? But then, it, I always see the people who are, you know, if they're lucky, they survive, but slapped in the face with reality because they're confronted with an accident, a tragic event, a catastrophe, and they potentially get out and they realize, like, holy crap, like. Why didn't I do this pre-mortem or this pre-analysis or this preparation in advance and I could have saved myself or saved my family? Um, how important is that to you in your personal life? Well, I mean, let's let's just do this. Um, my daughter, who's now seven, is quite familiar with a tourniquet. It's not that she has to carry one around all the time, but 
if the situation arises where a tourniquet's needed, I don't want to be trying to explain to her how to either help herself, help me, help her mom. Um, it's To me, it's not a burden. One, it's a chance for she and I to bond, for my family to come together and, and be closer. But it's it's a skill that why would you, I can't under, to me, I can't fathom considering that unimportant. To me, the, the moment spent on Instagram or the moment spent behind a, a remote sitting on the couch are far better spent fostering a relationship with your family, doing something that can save a life. Even if it's a ba- uh, applying a Band-Aid, talking through the process of the, the way your skin heals, blood clotting, um, blood flow through the body, um, hot and cold, the dealing with extremes, things like that are, are maybe I'm lucky because my daughter is extremely interested in all of those things. But I think you can develop that in your family as well. I think that's something that you can make a conscious decision to say, hey, let's talk about what we do in case the house catches on fire. Where do we go? What do we do? What about when you're at school and, I don't know, somebody else comes to pick you up except me or mom? Let's talk about those things. Let's let's develop a plan so that you know what to do. It's education. It's preparing, but it's it's also developing a relationship with your family. So I don't understand not valuing those things. To me, I, I, I can't comprehend that. Yeah, there used to be, uh, I remember what McGruff, the, uh, yeah. the dog and <laughs> the dare program and yeah. all these different programs where first responders were, were really integrated into our schools and they had these programs on teaching kids what to do during fires, like, you know, stop, drop and roll. Sure. And, and you know, and, and I'm assuming at some point it like, Hey, this is, it, it's like, uh, talking to kids about sex. It's like, it, it belongs to the family. Right. And so a lot of these organizations were, were shut down, and then it, it, it depended on the family. But now, more than ever, the, the kind of the construct and the architect uh, architecture behind the family unit has been dismantled. And Absolutely. so, and so, you don't have those core values being instilled because it's like, what's a core value? Well, if it's you know, you know, if it's a Christian, non-denominational, it's just it might be wrong or. You know, you, you should have a, a different mindset and it'd be accepting to all, but then there's something lost there. And I feel like, you know, when it comes to, especially preparedness, when it comes to the scary things in reality, nobody wants to talk about it because sure. they don't want to face it. And I get that complacency and freedom because I, I think it, by default, it's a characteristic of freedom. But um, I, I just hate people to make the sacrifice and not paying attention to that and That's then exactly something bad is. happening. You yeah, know? it's a sacrifice. Yeah. But and I'm not here to slam social media, but that's we see perfection. We see yeah. happy faces uh, unless you s- look for it, there's not disaster waiting between the flip of every thumb on your social media page. Well, if I do disaster posts, I'll call it fearmonger. <laughs> yeah. They're like, yep. oh, you're a fearmonger. I'm Absolutely. like, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know showing reality was fearmongering. Yeah. Or if you flip through any number of the, you know, first aid um, uh, accounts, they're all censored. You know, yeah. you, oh, don't, yeah. you have or to. Or kick, they, kick they kick them off. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, 
I do think that it's a responsibility of the family, like you said. It is good to see places like, I mean, my family went to Disneyland not long ago, and you, you know, they they had stopped the bleed kits with the AEDs now. So we're not oh, just nice. worried about heart attacks on roller coaster rides, but yeah. someone somewhere is acknowledging that there's a risk, that there's a threat out there, and at the very least, they're putting a few tools out there. I would. I would not risk, I don't risk my life on that. I don't wager anything on that kit being in there. I'm not going to waste my time looking at, at every location. I carry it with me, you know, yeah. it's, it's too easy nowadays. We have, I mean, it's, there's too many products available to keep yourself prepared. There's too many courses available to be prepared. There's too many, there's too much knowledge and experience, even for free yeah. out there. Yeah. If, if people just take the time, take those few minutes to look at it and share it with their families. It's again, I can't fathom not considering that important. Yeah. Uh, I know your Marsoc career got cut short and you were medically retired. That's right. Uh, what, what's the circumstances behind that? And do you have any, is there any regret there? Is there any, or do you feel like you're missing something? Yes. Um, I mean, I feel like I, I got hung up before I you know, in my prime essentially, um, early in my Marine Corps career, I had a knee surgery where a meniscus was, uh, removed from my left knee, uh, just sort of locked up middle of one of our beautiful three mile runs, um, few years later, I had a transplant put in and what nobody explained to me was sort of the three strikes you're out situation. So when I came back from Afghanistan and I was dealing with these situations in combat where my knees are locking up again, I'm, I'm left in a situation where basically I don't want to be, my body's not functioning the way that it's supposed to. And when I came back and said, Hey, we need to take care of this. This doctor told me, well, hey, you're on your third strike. Once you take these surgeries, um, I am making the decision to medically retire you. Um, I mean, he, he at least let me get my right knee done and then my left knee again. Um, but, um, you know, uh, it's not that I regret the last two surgeries, but I feel like there would have been better solutions if if maybe Navy medicine was a little more advanced and we could have worked through that a little bit better. Or if I would have been smart enough to, to and proactive enough to look at alternative solutions to surgery, then maybe I could still be there uh, with my brothers. But yeah, cause it's surgery, literal surgery that, <coughs> that, that they check the block and they say, okay, yeah, he's, yeah, he's they had cut the, surgery. the skin open. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Um, unfortunately. And what it is is three on the same situation. So I had three left knee surgeries, which, I mean, I had that before I was, you know, 27. So, um, <laughs> I like to say I'm a six, five guy in a five, 10 man's military. So, um, it was just rough. Yeah. You know, yeah. you've been in the back of a CH 53. They're not big looking around those toolboxes and jumping down off of them as a, as a young guy. Um, I wasn't thinking about the repercussions. Let's face it five years down the road, let alone 10. Um, so, that is my regret is not, not being more proactive and not using the, the information that was probably out there. It's certainly out there now. And that's what I would caution other guys against is take care of your bodies. I mean, you only get the one, use it to the best of your ability and, and, and push it to its limits in that, um, 
you know, become stronger, become faster, but do it wisely. Yeah. I was just doing a, a <laughs> webinar on CrossFit and talking to people about how I, I thought CrossFit was um, <clears throat> good in the sense that obviously you, cardiovascularly, you could increase, you, you know, your cardiovascular output in VO2 max because you're, you're obviously putting out in high intensity yeah. uh, intervals. But the fact that um, you have a short lifespan, right? And, and you could be the most super fit CrossFit athlete on the planet, but you have an expiration date because your body can't take that much abuse. Your joints, your right. your uh, you know, like your cartilage just can't take that much abuse. And yeah. and so we we started in special operations isolating specific things like, hey, when I do hit, it's separate from strength and conditioning because I'm not going to grossly manipulate. Um, an Olympic lift while I'm fatigued and right. risk injury. Absolutely. And so we do strength and conditioning as a separate entity, isolate these core movements, uh, these these core lifts, and then do the high intensity intervals in between or or separate completely. And what people don't understand is like being in, I mean, the average age of operators is I would say high 30s, mid 30s, high 30s, even some even low 40s in some units and organizations. And you have to look at your career. Longevity. Longevity. Yeah. It's definitely a marathon and not a sprint. Um, so now you got out in transitioning. How long have you been out? You've only been out for a couple of years, right? Yeah, four years now. Yeah. Coming up on exactly four years, yeah. So you, you full med retired. You got out. Correct. And so um, transitional-wise, like just going and becoming a civilian, <laughs> has that been difficult? It was strange. I mean, I think we all look for that brotherhood again. It's particularly difficult coming out of a special operations where you work in such a small team. You're spending every waking day, every waking hour rather, with these guys, going to their houses afterwards because you hang out, um, spending weekends with them to, you know, once you're out, you're gone. Um, some guys stick around. I I didn't. Uh, I couldn't handle the humidity of North Carolina anymore. So I, uh, um, yeah, I went back to California and, and searched for that, for that community, that brotherhood. Um, once I moved up to Flagstaff, um, I don't think it got better. I think people just got nicer and yeah. traffic got better. Um, and I'm, I've just been searching for something, going to school, um, trying to find purpose, um, and like you and I talked about the first time I walked in these doors, I found out you guys had moved to Prescott and just wanted to come in and, and see some sort of some familiar mentalities. Um, and the conversations that we had that we have had since then, it's just like being back in the team room. It's just like being part of that again. Um, I, I wish everybody could find that as easily as I did, even though it took four years, um, I, I wish everybody could. It's the purpose. It's it's finding a reason to get up. It's finding a reason to to um, put yourself into something. Put everything that you have into something. You know, I I'm fascinated by that because you know I, I you know selflessly obviously started Philcraft with that in mind. It, always in the back of my mind actually that you know hey by default of just creating this organization I could have team guys around me again. Sure. You know, it was just like. I mean, I got a, a buddy of mine coming here the month of July, he's, you know, former sniper. Um, um, you know, he is a sniper, but he's a, a, a team guy. 
George is here, you, Raul, like all the guys that we hang out with, Mason, Mike. It's like basically being on the teams again. Yeah. And it's that, that, that community or that tribe that we've been uh, missing. And what I realized in, you know, we just had this tribe expo recently. And the tribe is a membership that we have that's paid uh, monthly or annually. But people come in and, and they put it in their profiles, you know, they're, it, they're part of the tribe or their tribe number. And so many people are searching for this purpose in this community. And it's bewildering to me because I, now I get it, obviously, mm-hmm. coming from the military side of it. But I feel even worse off for civilians because none of that exists in the civilian right. world. I'm assuming that's why CrossFit, for example, is so popular. Because yeah, absolutely. You're all suffering together. And sure. so it's this, this tribe mentality. Um, what, what do you think are some of the reasons that that doesn't exist in the civilian world? I mean, that's the way society is moving, right? I mean, for, I'm not going to say for better or for worse. I think for worse, we're, we've become separated. Mm. We, I think most of us have read Sebastian Younger's book, The Tribe. Yeah, yeah. And that's not, I don't think that's the way we were meant to be. I don't think that's mm-hmm. what our, our, our bodies, our minds yearn for. We yearn for that closeness. We yearn for trust, compatibility, mm-hmm. um, and, and being around like-minded individuals. That's how progress is made. That's how we make ourselves better. Um, I think until society recognizes that on a more broad scale, um, we're just going to keep moving further and further apart. There will be niche groups like like us, mm-hmm. um, who recognize it because we miss it because we've had it. Yeah, we've been not forced into it, but we've been fortunate enough to to experience that. Yeah, um, I I don't know what other than mentoring young young men, young women, teenagers, um, and sort of fostering the desire for that. I don't know what else we can do. Yeah, it seems like when you divorce yourself from the military and you're and you give that up. What I always find fascinating is you see you you do have the team guys that hang around and yeah. they're you know constantly integrated and they just can't let go and, and the fear of that is at some point it's going to end you right know? and uh, I always tell guys getting out it's like nobody cares how elite or how special you were in your organization when you get to civilian world you are a sole proprietor of your own destiny. Right. And there is nothing to belong to unless you make it uh, for yourself or you find a niche group like yep. like us. And that's <laughs> it's scary to think about yeah. that. You know, it's scary to think about the pockets of tribes that are going to exist because we can't get along. I mean, you can't right. drive down the road without some dude flicking you off and telling you to F off and, you're, and just conflict of constant... I mean, I just spent, you know, yesterday driving out of L.A. after being with 511. <laughs> and, you know, that, that populated area, is, it, it's over 20 million people in the surrounding area. And nobody knows who the hell their neighbors are. No. Nobody knows who's in the car next to them. There is no sense of community, community anymore. No. I mean, there's more community, there's more community in the homeless uh, tent communities of that place than there are in the apartment buildings and and sky rises and everything else that's going on right there's beauty and tragedy in being able to choose whether or not you are part of a community mm-hmm. it's great to be able to make your own decisions independence freedom that's awesome but 
it's tragic when people don't make the decision to move into those communities to not that people can choose where they live, but to, to take part in those activities to, like you said, CrossFit, small groups of people suffering together, um, recognizing that tomorrow we're going to meet here and we're going to do it again. And the next day we're going to do it again. Mm -hmm. Um, familiarization where I grew up, I knew my neighbors, um, only next door though. I mean, it didn't extend beyond that and it's only gotten worse. Mm -hmm. Now you don't, you have no idea. No. Your blinds are always closed because you, you're afraid that there's somebody out there who's looking at, <laughs> looking inside. It's weird. Yep. It's, yeah. It's, it's weird, man. It's an unnatural feeling. It's co completely unnatural. It's a good, good way to put it. It just feels unnatural. And like, I, you know, being overseas, I do miss those moments because it's like, you know, I slept in the worst conditions, you know, on a cot, sometimes just the ground underneath our Land Rovers and and you were in a dangerous, precarious situation that was really fragile, but you felt most at home right. in those situations. And, you know, I, I think, you know, outside of uh, beating that dead horse, that the progression moving forward is, you know, establishing a uh, maybe a value-based system or tribe or group or organization right. that has a value like in preparedness like ours. You know, obviously that, you know, we, st we stand behind the messaging of uh, uh, what happens if you don't prepare or you aren't ready for the worst case scenario. But in what that could develop as a organization moving forward, as a community moving forward, this, this tribe of or network of people who are, uh, taking care of each other. And yeah. that's what I like to see. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you value preparedness in for yourself and your family, imagine how much more valuable that will be if your network, if your is network expanded. Yeah. 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 100%. I think, I don't think in looking at survival in many instances of the, in the worst case, you can't survive for an extended period of time without the network. No. You have to have a network. Absolutely. I even thought about starting a, uh, all inclusive club, uh, where you invest, what you can invest into it that's called the network where, you know, we have a ranch, we have, I mean, this is, this is obviously my brain thinking <laughs> 10 years ahead, but you have a ranch, you have an establishment, you have, um, you know, a place that you can get together. Um, you could do annual meets and, and just bond together over the things that you right. guys care about. Yeah. You know, that are important. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Put away your phones for a little while. Oh, imagine that. Oh my gosh, man. <laughs> it's sickening. I, I judged George last yesterday on our uh, our drive back home. Um, he had his phone. I was like, "How many hours do you get per day on on the social media platform?" And when you're looking at hours of your life per day, oh, it's depressing, man. It is. It's depressing. Years of people's lives are spent on their phone. Years, years, and I, I've gotten it down to a science now where I'm in and out, man. I know how to put it down, interact, and just optimize my time and not get lost in these rabbit rabbit holes and it starts with a lot of self-discipline i mean yes. it's like what am i doing like why you know just like you said in raising your your daughter it's like why am i wasting time um in this rabbit hole when i could be spending quality time with my family yeah and think about the the um think about what they see what they're looking at is mm. mommy and daddy habits, sitting yeah. on their phone their habits yeah what I think about the things that my parents did when I was a kid and how without even realizing it, I'm doing those things mm -hmm. and they're going to do the same thing. If we spend our, our, and I'm, 
I'm guilty of it sometimes, spending too much time on the phone, on social media, you know, instead of pushing pushing her on the swing, instead of watching her do her gymnastics, instead of whatever. Um, it's It's years that you can't get back. It's the only thing that you can't buy, you can't give to someone. It's... <coughs> You're it's, never going to get that back. No, yeah, it's gone. That second, that minute, That's that right. moment in time, it's you're never going to get that opportunity That's right. back. It's like that. I always think about that in the in the context of time. That you know that person, you know, our lives. This is the last you know Thursday of this date of this life that we'll ever get. Yep. And there's no turning back on that. That's it's right. Like, it's an opportunity, and you could look at it as like an optimistic opportunity. Or you can look at it as like I'm just, you know, burning, spinning wheels in the parking lot. Yeah. And you can look back on those moments in regret or relief that you were prepared for it. Yeah, absolutely. You got any regrets uh, up to this moment in time? None worth dwelling on. Everything that I've done, all the decisions that I've made have brought me to where I am today. I'm, I'm lucky. I have a fantastic wife and daughter and... Um, I mean, I'm living in Arizona. That's better than, you know, a lot of other people can say. We've got it pretty good here. Yeah. I, I can't say I have any regrets. Oh, awesome, man. Yeah, this is Mecca for me, man. I'm <laughs> not going anywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure. I'm honored. Yeah. Looking forward to working with you guys more. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. So if you guys are listening to this podcast, uh, what is your social media handle for uh, Instagram? If people want to see, learn, or figure out when you uh, the next time you're training – at j dot j dot marks m a r k s k s j dot j dot marks m a r k s on the uh, gram. Um, also, you know, we use social media to to push our dates, to push training. Um, look forward to having you out in a, a, a range pi uh, shortly, man. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I look forward to seeing you guys out there. Yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast, Joel. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, guys, if you're uh, just tuning in, make sure you guys go check out PhilCraftSurvival.com. We also have PhilCraft Mobility. We have the clean side, which is the no guns, just so we can get through social media marketing, uh, PhilCraftMobility.com, and then PhilCraftSurvival.com with all our updated training. Uh, upcoming dates, we have a few courses in mobility on the mobility.com, a few courses listed out for carbine and pistol. even got a TCCC course August 17. And August 18 here in Prescott at the Philcraft HQ in Prescott, Arizona. If you guys are interested in this podcast, make sure you guys leave feedback and subscribe. Also, we got Modern Mindset 365 uh, as a podcast as well. That's all on Mindset, which uh, we'll maybe have Joel back here to do a Mindset podcast as well. Uh, but I appreciate you guys tuning in. And uh, yeah, thanks for all the support, guys. Make sure you guys use Mike if you're hearing this to save 10% on your next checkout. Thanks, guys.